welcome to the Real Clear Defense podcast, Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with David Craig, editor at Real Clear Defense. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the Allied powers ended fighting with Germany, their last remaining Axis enemy. Originally celebrated as Armistice Day, November 11th has become the day that we celebrate military veterans and their service. Today, there are around 19 million surviving veterans, less than 10% of U.S. adults. Veterans from the Gulf War era make up the largest portion at 41%, followed by 31% of veterans first serving in Vietnam. But there are still an estimated 240,000 veterans of World War II and just under a million who served during the Korean conflict. Fewer Americans have had military service than ever before, down from 18% in 1980 to just 7% of U.S. adults in 2018. What does it mean to be a veteran in a society where that experience is increasingly rare? As a nation, how should we pay tribute to their service and sacrifice? Today, we are joined by retired Lieutenant General Rod Bishop. Over his 34 years of service in the Air Force, General Bishop served in Desert Storm, Somalia, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Haiti. He was Director of Planning and Policy at U.S. Southern Command in Miami. Retiring in 2008, his last assignment was as Commander of the 3rd Air Force in Romstein Air Force Base in Germany, where he oversaw all American air and space activities in the 93 countries in Europe and Africa. Today, he is the President and CEO of STARS Incorporated. General Bishop, welcome to Hot Wash. Well, thank you so much, John. I'm going to hand things over to David. David, uh, why don't you start us off with this? Yes, sir. General, uh, one thing uh, that my friends and I like to ask people and I think becomes a more interesting question, especially with Veterans Day approaching, is when you signed up, what what was the motivating factor? And usually there's more than one. I know when I think back to when I enlisted in the Marine Corps, uh, there really wasn't any one specific thing, but one of the sort of shaping uh, romantic ideas of being in the military was through my family and my parents and, you know, extended family. My uncle was second lieutenant in World War II. My father had served on Kwajalein during the Korean War. And another uncle was in 1st Marine Division uh, in the Korean War. So for you, what was it that gave you that spark and decision to serve in the military? You know, uh, David, thanks for that question. I think it's one I can answer pretty well because one of the things I do in my spare time is uh, mentor young men and women who want to go to the Air Force Academy. And that's always a question I ask them. Uh, why is it that you want to go to the Air Force? Why do you want to serve? And, you know, they'll give you the standard answer. Well, I just wanted to serve. And my advice to them is, no, make it come from the heart. Why do you want to serve? And I wanted to serve because I had two first cousins who were in the Air Force. But I think mostly I was moved uh, by my uncle, who I very rarely ever got to see because he was in North Africa, landed on Utah Beach on D-Day, was in the Battle of the Bulge, all as a part of Big Red One. And every time we'd go to visit my dad's brothers in New Hampshire and Maine, we would never get to see Uncle Harold. 
just very few times because he was always in the VA hospital. And I can remember, wow, this, this, this uncle of mine really has given a lot for my country. So I think that was what motivated me initially. I had it reinforced when I got married. My wife's dad was the first wave of Marines on Saipan. And uh, at his funeral just a couple of years ago, I reminded everybody since I was asked to give the eulogy, what a sacrifice dad made when he stepped over the side of his uh, landing craft and reached to help his friend ashore and his friend didn't have a head. And what that uh, meant to his family, it was only a loving family that brought him back from that PTSD. So it's all these experiences of, uh, you know, just looking at it from as a kid in high school saying, wow, these, these people, this, it just is a way of reflecting the love that I was brought up to have for my country. And how did that carry with you throughout your career in the, the sense you got from the other service members that you served with for 34 long years? Yeah, um, you know, you, you always felt, and I'm sure you felt the same way, David, that you were a part of something bigger than yourself. I mean, every, every time I raised my right hand and took that oath, and I'd like to come back to the oath kind of towards the end if I can. I mean, I took that oath 10 times and probably administered it 100. And it's just so powerful because, wow, here I am giving my fellow citizens a blank check. And my life is the uh, collateral for that blank check. So that's a powerful message. And, uh, you know, something that's inspirational. Um, But I frequently say now I'm, I'm on the most important mission of my life. Because, uh, unfortunately, our military, I think, is being infected by a a poisonous ideology that is going to diminish its capabilities, certainly is uh, attacking the military's focus on fundamentals. And hopefully we can talk about that a little bit more. Yes. uh, Before just before we get to that, that'll be my next question. Uh, What does what is veteran stay mean to you and and what do you think it means to most veterans and then follow that up with how it you know in contrast how it what it means to civilians well unfortunately given the uh, statistics that john uh, read off it probably just means in some cases a day off to most civilians Uh, And that's not blanket across the board. I do get a number of notes on Veterans Day from civilian friends thinking of the service that uh, I and so many of us have been able to give. Um, What it means to me personally now, I I just think again of the sacrifice. And what I think most of, David, is the sacrifice of those who came back to us but didn't come back whole like my uncle, like all the people that we see that don't have a particular body part or because, uh, you know, their mind not be right. Shoot, the biggest sacrifice I made was 28 moves and, you know, bringing three kids through three different high schools, all of them, Uh, (laughs) and maybe a lot of 80-hour work weeks. That pales in comparison to the sacrifice that many of our fellow vets have made. Yeah, I, I I sort of feel the same way. I, I I almost think of it in terms of a Memorial Day in some ways. And like you said, it's not just for those that didn't come back with us. 
it's also those that carry with them scars that have really made the rest of their lives a, a, a challenge. Um, For sure. And th- that's how I kind of like to remember it. And, uh, but that's, you know, no reason why the civilian side shouldn't honor all veterans, though, like you and I as well. But I think there's special meaning for us with uh, the ones that didn't come back and then the ones that have been permanently disabled by war in one way or the other. Most definitely. What do you think is so important about the military academies? And let me give you a quick example. I was in Afghanistan in 2011, and one of our colleagues who's not with us today went to the Naval Academy. And before our deployment, it was a year long, and I had realized he had gone to the Naval Academy, but not by him saying it. I had to pull it out of him, and I asked him why he didn't want to admit that he had gone to the Naval Academy. Because I, you know, to me that was a high honor. Um, he said, "Well, they were kind of encouraged to downplay it because uh, sometimes there was some some slight animus between those that went to OCS, vice uh, one of the military academies." Um, but the irony of it was that throughout my career, I always felt like the, some of the best leaders came from the academy. And I asked him why he thought that might be. Uh, and I explained why, though. They always wanted the expert in the room, and they weren't quite as rank conscious. Um, and he said it's because when you go through the academy, it's really challenging, and you're very dependent on others to get through. And so a lot of the graduates of the academy carry that through and throughout their career. And, you know, one one of my mentors when I was in the Marine Corps is now a two, maybe a three-star general, General Glavy. And he was very much like that as well, just an outstanding leader. So in general, could you give me your, your thoughts? You're, an Air, of course, an Air Force Academy graduate and what you think is so important about the, all the uh, military academies. Well, I- you know, I, I was taught that they're the premier commissioning sources uh, for our services. Uh, there certainly is an intense focus on military life. There is certainly more focus on developing leaders of character, for example, which is one of the big themes of the Air Force Academy, than there would be if you went to a civilian college. Now, that's not to diminish at all um, the, the graduates that came from ROTC. Um, you know, I'd say the uh, specialness of being an academy grad uh, probably wore off for me after two or three years, and that's maybe because you recognized all the people who were fellow academy grads. Um, but but after that, you know, it was just people that wanted to to serve our country. But the academy certainly does provide you. Uh, shoot, when I was a freshman, I got to leave the academy grounds one time the the entire first semester. And it wasn't even for an overnight. So just that constant um, exposure. Uh, and, and I guess I think back as well to what the liaison officer told me when I was in my living room and he was interviewing me for, you know, to fill out his little form. I'm trying to ascertain my motivation. And uh, what, he, what he said was, um, you know, should you get in, you're going to be rubbing shoulders with the best at my time, now now we could add women, but the best young men that America has to offer. And that, that thought stuck with me. And that's not to say that, again, that people 
who went to ROTC or came in through OTS weren't. But these were people that were focused on uh, a particular school for a particular reason. And that particular reason, I think, was to be, you know, the best that they can be. Or right. to use the Air Force, uh, one of the Air Force's core values, uh, excellence in all that we do. Right. Exactly. Um, now, getting into the STARS issue, before we jump into that completely, what jumped out to me this last February, uh, you know, a friend of ours, Brent, had, uh, unfortunately, I, I can't believe I heard it from him first. I had to go research it afterwards. I found that all the boards of advisors for all the military academies had been relieved. Uh, can you explain to me the genesis of, of that and why it was so unpre unprecedented? Well, I guess we'd have to ask the current administration uh, the uh, the impetus behind it. I mean, I have my suspicions. Um, we, STARS was first formed when five of us uh, became aware of an Air Force Academy football coach video that said Black Lives Matter seven times in a three-minute video. And the, the five of us that live in the Monument area outside the north gate of the academy said, what the heck's going on? Why is our football team all of a sudden becoming political? Uh, and I wrote the superintendent at the time, who I knew fairly well. He had wor worked for me as a colonel over in Europe. And I said, hey, Jay, if you want to say that the academy and the football team uh, want to raise the bar uh, and stand against racism, you'll have 51,000 graduates standing with you. But if you use the slogan of an organization that has told us that is Marxist, and this video, by the way, came out in July of 2020 when our cities were burning at the hands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, uh, it's gonna be divisive. And you know, it, it seemed pretty obvious to me and wasn't long before multi-million dollars were walking away, people weren't renewing their football tickets, et cetera. Uh, the boards of visitors are kind of like the board of regents for a college. They oversee that. Um, you know, where the, the next step where I thought, okay, well, this isn't just football coaches was we tried for two months with that superintendent to get him to take that video off the official Air Force uh, website. He did not do that. We filed an IG complaint because it clearly breaks a number of DOD regulations and the laws in the, in the minds of, I think at the time we had four lawyers and stars. Now I have nine. <clears throat> and not, I don't mean that the way it came out because I love <laughs> having nine lawyers, believe me. Um, but, uh, and, and despite them saying, yeah, this, this breaks, uh, you know, a number of DOD and Air Force in, uh, instructions and regs, the IG came back and said, no, after the election, by the way, it came right. back and said, no harm, no foul. And so, you know, we said, well, how, how do we have an impact here? And the thought came to our minds, well, we need to start spinning up the board of visitors. And so we did that. We reached out to a number of them. And then, you know, I guess as the next acts to fall in this campaign, the, the president administration, when they took over, suspended all those boards. And uh, some in, in the STARS group, one of our lawyers in particular, wanted to sue right at that moment. And we said, well, you know, they, they, they tell us they're just taking a look at it. They told us it'll only be a month or two. Well, after four or five months, we said, okay, enough is enough and filed a lawsuit because those boards of visitors are grounded in congressional statute. Secretary of Defense, we are told by many, doesn't have the power to uh, suspend those. But then um, 
the administration, what, a couple of months ago, broke all precedents and just terminated or asked for the letters of recommendations of all political appointees from the former administration. So 16 or 18 BOV members for all three of the major service academies were just gone. So that that adds to your suspicion, I would think. Yeah. And, and typically, from what I read, was every administration prior to that just waited because the, they typically only serve three years and every other administration, all other administrations waited till that three-year term was up to replace. Exactly. You know, what was. difference should it make if the military is apolitical? Right. Yeah. And there were, there were probably a couple of his selections maybe that weren't appropriate, but certainly not every one of them, obviously. <laughs> I mean, H.R. McMaster. Uh, yeah. General yeah. King. I'm uh, Maybe Sean Spicer has served in the Navy Reserve. Uh, well, and then even Kissinger, I think, too, right? That one, I don't know. I, I'm very familiar with the Air Force Academy ones because I had spent a lot of my time spinning them up as, as to what was happening at the academy. Right, right. You know, what's interesting, too, is I've tried to ask other people, you know, what we should do. You know, we're trying to do this equality and equity, but I think we're approaching it the wrong way. We have to give people a reason to want to serve, you know. Uh, I even spoke to a guy that was uh, Latino in the Navy or half, and he said that uh, the reason there weren't more in the senior ranks is because they're so family-oriented. Typically, their families won't tolerate uh, the two-year rotation. You know, once you hit 05, you hit that cycle of two-year duty, you know, tours of duty. And that can be pretty dramatic for a family to have to deal with, as you know, personally. Um, but it, there's a similar issue, I think, with the African-American community that people don't realize is that they're quite family oriented. And, you know, making sure that they get a good education and then have a reason to want to serve is probably should be the focus of effort rather than this whole equity aspect. I, I don't know. But getting on to the next part, um, tell us about STARS and why you felt it necessary. I mean, you've already sort of given us the foundation why you thought it was necessary to start the organization. It was basically to keep politics out of the academies. Um, and I think just last week, there were, weren't there three cadets at the U.S. Military Academy that dropped out because they felt as though they were getting sort of a social justice or political education and not so much a war fighting education. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I mean, wasn't it, wasn't that a great clip? I mean, it's so much more powerful when it comes from the source, I think, rather than through an intermediary like me. Um, I don't mind being an intermediary. Um, we are told by a number of cadets, thank you for being our, our voice because most of them, just want to keep their head down and power through it. You don't want to rock the boat. Right. You, you, you right. think you're going to ruin your career if you speak out. You know? Yeah. But, but when, you know, cadets that you've known their family since before they were born, you've seen them grow up their entire life. They want to go to the Air Force Academy and they tell you, I'm now telling my friends, don't come here. It's the worst possible place to be as a white male Christian. You go, whoa, what the heck is happening? And right on the heels of that, you know, we see the 
the Black Lives Matter video, and then through the course of, geez, I want to say the next six or seven months, it seemed like we had another um, egregious indoctrination example, uh, one right after the other. And then we learned that it wasn't just the academy, it's the other academies. And then we came in contact with Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, the Space Force commander who was uh, terminated uh, for writing a book uh, about of this indoctrination and how it was having a divisive effect on, on the units in the Air Force and the Space Force that he observed. And you, you just have to say, well, wait a minute, we, we have to stop. The military is supposed to be an apolitical organization. So STARS was formed with that educational purpose in mind, to first educate or try to educate, try to have a conversation with uh, the leaders in the Department of Defense and tell them the road you're taking our military down is not a road that's healthy for the military or our country. It's it's divisive. This ideology is divisive. We have, in working with Senator Cotton and Representative Crenshaw, we have over 500 examples that people have uh, filled out forms and told us, you know, this, this just isn't right. Just like those three West Point cadets, if you noticed, uh, although they were advertised as leaving West Point because they didn't want to take the shot, uh, Sean Hannity asked all of them, would you have stayed if you weren't mandated to ta- take the vaccine? And all three of them said no because of this indoctrination. So the indoctrination itself is uh, is poisonous. Again, STARS wants to educate America and Americans that, hey, we have a country that's worth defending. We have to resist this propaganda. And, uh, you know, the readiness of our forces and our military is at, is at uh, stake. Um, there's only so many hours in a day. And if we're going to spend so much time, as cadets told us, this summer for basic cadet training, we heard diversity, equity, inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion all summer long. One guy said, I felt like I was being subliminally uh, uh, just indoctrinated all the time. And I have to wonder, the admissions office at the Air Force Academy has already brought the team in. They brought the class of 2025 in. You've got what you've got. So why all this inf- this emphasis on diversity? They don't mean it like it was when you and I served, David. Diversity was a good word then. Um, this, this ideology, I mean, the people who are pushing this ideology are experts at language reconstruction and word reconstruction. Diversity no longer means, oh, diversity of thought, background. If I'm a JTF commander, boy, I sure want to have all the forces uh, from the other services in here. Diversity now almost exclusively, ask anybody that's serving, almost exclusively means uh, state-sponsored management of goals, which are really quotas based on skin color. Right. Right. And that's what was shocking to me is that the military had become so far ahead of normal society to where, you know, for example, in the Marine Corps, I remember one of my friends that was black. He's like, there's no colors in the Marine Corps except green. Everyone's green. You know, there is no, there's no, there's no skin color. We're all green. Yeah. We all bleed red. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you, it's something that never crossed anyone's mind. It never came up in any of my combat deployments or, you know, I, th- I think it did may have earlier on, but uh, there just was no tolerance for racist behavior 
throughout my career. So I don't understand. You know, I, I think even one of these journalists had sent me an article that there was this diversity office getting set up, which I didn't understand because we already had the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the the EEOs within every unit. Uh, so I don't know. I did. It did just didn't make sense to add another layer to this. Um, I, I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just this week, I mean, to show you how deeply embedded this is getting just this week, a whistleblower, a Naval Academy graduate has, I don't know, I think it's a granddaughter or something at the Air Force Academy. And they sent us a copy of uh, essentially an implementation instruction for a diversity, equity, and inclusion chain of command throughout the academy. And if you read the documents, you know, they they report to the squadron got person reports to the group, reports to the the wing DEI officers, and, and they take their guidance from who? The superintendent's D DNI office, diversity and inclusion office. Now, if, if that doesn't bring back memories of the Russian commissars or you know, maybe even the political officers of uh, the Gestapo. I don't know what does. And if you ask cadets, as we have done, so what is this? I mean, what do you think of it? They tell you it's a bunch of bull. I mean, just like you said very, very articulately, the military has led our society for decades in integration, uh, just squashing out discrimination. And if somebody's committing those offenses, as I told the president superintendent in a uh, the first very first Zoom meeting we had with him, you know, if there's issues, why don't we just put our arms around one another? Let's just put our arms around one another and solve right. these issues. I mean, why create all of this focus for something that doesn't exist? I mean, take take the uh, Secretary of Defense uh, day where the military was to take off and uh, just sit back and talk about extremism. Think about it. The four examples of extremism right. that they indoctrinate the entire military with are four examples of white extremism from 2019, as if 2020 didn't exist. I mean, come on. If you don't think that's going to be divisive to at least half of your force, I mean, people are smarter than what you're giving them exactly. credit for. Um, you have some events plan for Veterans Day. Can you give us some background on that? Well, the, the, the biggest one, I appreciate that question. The biggest one, and it doesn't cost anybody a dime. We just would like to get vets to remember the oath they took. You know, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, David, the sense of pride, the sense of being a bigger part, a, a part of something bigger than oneself. Um, so what we're asking vets to do is just come to our website at Stars. That's two R's, S-T-A-R-R-S dot U-S. Uh, click on the button and, and re renew your oath. Um, it doesn't cost a dime, um, but there is a form there if you want to help uh, in any way to become part of this effort to uh, resist this indoctrination. We'd be glad to have your assistance. Um, and when you take the oath this time and you raise your right hand, I don't know about you, but I took that oath 10 times. And I administered probably 100 over 34 years. Uh, and I never thought of I strongly swear to protect, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I never once thought of that domestic part. Uh, I should have. I mean, Abraham Lincoln warned us that if we were ever to uh, 
be taken over. It would become from within. And I, I have to think that this is a concerted effort if you just connect the dots. Right. And so just, just come to our website, renew your oath. If you can help us out, that's great. We have some events in the Colorado Springs area, but mostly during this month uh, of, you know, Veterans Day month, we're, we're calling it. We just want to thank vets for their service. And uh, if you have the opportunity, stand with us. And serve once again. You know, and I think a thing that would be more uh, beneficial if we're talking about diversity and all these things is making sure that these low income communities, and it's not just black, it's all, you know, white, black, Hispanic, have better, better education. Uh, and we failed, you know, Baltimore gets $16,000 per student and, and look at where they rank in their testing. Well, if I can address that one, I mean, that's, that's such a great point, such a great point. And if you look at, we have a list uh, that we're working our way through of over 80 different organizations that we'd like to uh, potentially uh, collaborate with. Uh, one of our very first, if not the first, was a group out of Minnesota uh, called Take Charge. It was started by a black man called um, by the name of Kendall Qualls. He was a recent candidate for Congress in Minnesota. And that's that's exactly what he is saying in that group's message is that we need to have better education. We also need to now focus more on the family because if you look at his uh, introductory video, yeah. you know, only 20 to 25% of black families now have two parents in the home. And I don't know about you, but it was my dad helping me with my algebra, my mom helping me with my English that, um, you know, got me to a point of being high enough to be able to compete for the academy. So I think that's that's a very, very important message that that you just highlighted. Well, one of the lieutenant colonel I worked with at the DIA, uh, we had one of our suicide stand downs and. He was the deck commander at NSA, and he noticed that they, they had six suicides during his tour. And he did his own research, and all six of them did not have a good family support network. And I don't know what the you know racial breakdown is, but uh, it was diverse. Um, so, I mean, this is without race or anything, you know, a lot. A lot there are a fairly large number of our kids that go in the military that have weak family support networks. So I think it would be good, you know, to try to promote good family support networks, but also if we get them in the military to be aware of it and figure out how to create that network for them while they're serving. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, identifying some of them and help mentoring them along the way, because sometimes there's there's a lot of diamonds in the rough that we never necessarily realize. But, uh, you know, that's perhaps something we could work on a little bit as, as well. But the important thing with the education I brought up, I think, is to incre create, increase that pool. And then by just by the way the military naturally operates, we would have a far larger number of minorities in the military, you know, but unfortunately a lot of them don't meet the criteria because of where they come from or their educational difficulties because of where they grew up. Yeah. I've asked my friend Kendall on how he feels about that. And I worked in admissions at the air force Academy in the early eighties. And, and we were pretty proud. I think of the way we handled the admissions process. 
Were the standards lower for minorities to get in? Yes, because we wanted the Air Force Academy and the Air Force to be reflective of society. That's an overall good goal, I think. But the two things that we just hit, the family situation at home and the education, those are, my personal opinion, we're getting a little bit off the mission of stars here, but that's where our country needs to be uh, put our focus because here we are, you know, 40 years after. Back in the early 80s, we said, well, you know, we're only 12 years, 15 years from the civil rights era. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden we finally gave our black brothers and sisters uh, the promises that we had uh, enjoyed since birth uh, and the promise that was given to all men are created equal by our founding documents and we the people. And, you know, they just got those rights. And I don't know if you follow Shelby Steele. And, you know, he says, well, all of a sudden here we are. We, we got our freedom. And now what do we do with it? Because we haven't had the training, et cetera. So I, I think although some will disagree with me, I think affirmative action back then anyway had a place in time. The question I think we all should struggle with as a nation is, well, how long does that place in time last? And when do we start to focus on the root causes? So any parting thoughts for Veterans Day that you'd like to pass along to veterans, active duty, service members, reservists, and then our civilian community? Well, well, thank you for that, that question. I, I guess my my closing thoughts would uh, go, go to the vets and, and let's fast forward. You talked about it a little bit at the beginning uh, in your comment that Veterans Day also kind of mills into Memorial Day. And we say in stars, when people ask, well, why aren't you out playing golf? <laughs> don't you have better <laughs> things to do? No, we don't. Uh, this is the most important mission of our lives is to try to turn the direction of our country uh, in a different direction. And so when people ask, why are we in it? We say we're in it for the 20 year olds. And that's not necessarily the 20 year olds that may be our kids or grandkids. Those are the 20 year olds that are buried above the cliffs of Normandy or the 20 year olds that are on the buried on the beaches across the Pacific, the hills of Korea or the jungles of Vietnam that never made it to 30 because they were fighting against the same type of tyrannical type of government, be it fascism, Nazism, communism, that unfortunately the same type of tyrannical ideology is creeping into our country today. Isn't that ironic? Right. So th thanks to everybody that has served. And here's another opportunity to serve uh, with stars if you'd like to. Yes, sir. On that note, we will have to end it there for today. General Bishop, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you very much, John and David. A pleasure being with you both. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.